Welcome everybody to Learn With Lowell. Today we're joined with Dr. Matt Caberline, PhD from MIT, expert in fundamental mechanisms of aging. Some companies' projects he's involved in is just a little list. The Dog Aging Project, Optispan Ventures, and Aura Biomedical. There's also a lab that he's run for about 20 years. And uh, on the website right now, if you go to it, and you click the homepage, it says live long or die trying. Matt, welcome to the show and thank you for taking the time to be here today. Thank you, it's a pleasure. Jumping into rapamycin, and so uh, a lot of people ask questions about this, and we're gonna layer them in throughout, but on, on a high level for people who are just coming into this very new, what is rapamycin? And uh, and then let's let's talk about your relationship with it, but let, on, on, on a high level, what is it? And what's, sure. what's interesting? Sure, so rapamycin is a small molecule. It's actually, actually a natural product that was first discovered on Easter Island or Rapa Nui mm. is another name for Easter Island. That's actually where the drug rapamycin gets its name from. It's produced by a bacterium uh, that's found in the soil there. Uh, and it, it's probably, I think most people believe that the reason those bacteria produce rapamycin is as an antifungal. So it mm. sort of allows the bacteria to compete with fungal species that are in, in the soil there. So that's probably the, bio, the, the primary biological mechanism of rapamycin is it impairs fungal growth. Now, it was discovered uh, 25, 30 years ago now, maybe more than that, um, in these soil samples. And when people realized it had this antifungal, anti-proliferative activity, people started studying it for that property. So they were thinking mm -hmm. it might be a useful antifungal, might be a useful anti-cancer, right? So cancer cells are cells that divide uncontrollably. If you had a drug that impairs cell division, that might be useful as an anti-cancer drug. So people started studying it um, for those purposes. Uh, it ultimately ended up being first approved for clinical use as an um, immunosuppressant. Um, and so it's been approved now for more than 20 years by the FDA uh, to prevent organ transplant rejection. First, I think for kidney transplants, and then it's been more broadly used for heart transplants and some other kinds of transplanted organs. So that's how most people in the clinical community will know about rapamycin. It actually also goes under the name Sirolimus, same hmm. molecule. I don't know why they decided it needed two names, but it's got two names. Um, and it's been used for many, many years as an as a organ transplant medication. I, I, the reason why I sort of um, explicitly mention that is I think that some of the, the, the concepts that we may get into around rapamycin and its potential effects on aging and, and longevity get complicated by the fact that it was actually first developed as an immunosuppressant. So at high doses, there's no question, rapamycin can prevent the immune system from rejecting transplanted organs. It's always used in combination with other strong immunosuppressants. Um, but in that context, there is a side effect profile that is very different from what we see when we use it at lower doses in healthy animals, potentially people, to have an impact on health span and, and lifespan. And so I just think it's useful for people to understand the history here so that so that you can appreciate that that some of what we think we know about rapamycin in the clinical context may not actually apply in a different context, right? In organ transplant patients versus healthy people. So I think that's important. Um, mm -hmm. The reason why I got interested in rapamycin really stemmed from work that I was doing when I was a postdoctoral fellow at the University of Washington, where we were looking for new genes that affected lifespan. And so, you know, at this time, this was the early 2000s, 2003, 2004, 
um, that was really something that a lot of people in the field were interested in because we didn't know a lot about the genetics of aging back then. So lots and lots of different labs were doing what are called genetic screens to figure out what are the genes that influence lifespan in different animal uh, and organismal models. And so that was one of the things I was working on. And we found from an unbiased genetic screen, meaning we didn't go looking for it, we found that a gene called TOR, which actually mm -hmm. stands for target of rapamycin, T-O-R, uh, when we turned it down, extended lifespan. And so I didn't know anything about rapamycin at this point, but we'd found TOR. And so I went and looked in the literature and, and, and realized there's a drug out there that inhibits TOR. So we found that genetically turning down TOR could extend lifespan. There was a drug that pharmacologically could turn down TOR. And so it made sense to test whether rapamycin could affect lifespan given that connection. And so that was my introduction to TOR and rapamycin. And it was one of these sort of interesting things that happens in science sometimes where there were four labs, actually. I was one of the people, but then three other labs independently also sort of converged on TOR within this same one or two year period. And so in different animal models. So, you know, this was one of those nice situations where through happenstance, to some extent, multiple groups independently landed at the same spot, figured out that TOR was a really important regulator of longevity across many, many different organisms. Um, and then we all also got interested in rapamycin about that time. And so since then now, you know, there has grown to be a massive body of literature showing that either genetically inhibiting TOR or pharmacologically, meaning with a drug inhibiting TOR with rapamycin, can increase lifespan and improve a whole bunch of health span metrics in every model organism where this has been studied, all the way from very simple single-celled budding yeast up to mice, um, which are, you know, relatively complicated mammals, and even some data now in dogs and a little bit of data in people, all supporting the idea that when you turn down TOR with rapamycin, you can attenuate the biological aging process, increase health span metrics, and potentially increase lifespan. Certainly in the laboratory models, all of that is rock solid. I think, you know, where we're kind of at today is we don't, we don't know with 100% certainty to what extent will rapamycin positively impact lifespan and health span outside of the laboratory. And that's kind of the next frontier, I would say, for the field, at least in this area, to, to learn to what extent um, is that the case. Mm -hmm. it, it's interesting to hear that, it, you know, Easter Island, uh, bacteria in the soil, and then, you know, we're able to use that for organ transplant and we're finding these other uses as well. It, it always makes me wonder what all thing, what, what all does the earth have in store that we don't even know yet? And, uh, and, you know, especially Easter Island where everyone died off. I mean, it's kind of like, there, it's like some weird symmetry there, especially considering like it might have life expansion related properties. <laughs> the... Uh, uh, for rapamycin, when you apply it to the different species, is it is it like a a normal distribution of benefit relative to the species? Like, is there like a so like fifteen percent to twenty percent? Like, is there like to that species for uh, applied across the board? Or yeah, I understand what you're asking. Yes. Um, uh, so a couple things I I would say there. Um, one is we don't really know um, what the optimal level of lifespan extension we can achieve is in different organisms. Okay. Mm. So I think it's fair to say that there has not been a comprehensive dose response, so to speak, for rapamycin in terms of its effects on lifespan 
Um, certainly not in mice, probably not in flies or C. elegans or yeast, which are the other three major model organisms that, that are typically used in the field. So I don't know that I can answer your, your question. I think the, yeah. the question you're asking, and this is an important one, <clears throat> stems from the observation that for things like caloric restriction, which is much more, it's been studied for much longer than rapamycin in this context, it seems to be the case that the magnitude of lifespan extension in terms of percent lifespan extension is larger in the simpler, shorter-lived model organisms. In other words, maybe you'd get a 100% effect on lifespan in worms and a 30% effect on lifespan in mice, and worms live about 10 times shorter than mice do. So, so the question is, I, I think, or one question is, as we start to try to extrapolate these interventions to longer and longer lived species, humans being sort of at the far end of that, that distribution, would we predict that the magnitude of effect is going to get correspondingly shorter, at least in terms of percent lifespan extension? I don't think we know the answer to that question yet. I think it's a reasonable um, expectation. And certainly if, if somebody forced me to say, what would you predict, Matt? Given what we know today, what would you predict? My prediction is that indeed the absolute, or sorry, I should say the relative effect in terms of like percent effect compared to average will be smaller in humans compared to mice. So if rapamycin, let's say if we could optimize, it could have a 40% effect on lifespan in mice. Maybe we're talking a 10%, 15% effect in humans. But Again, I think it's important to just say that's a, that's really an educated guess, and it's no more yeah. than that. the answer is we don't know. Mm -hmm. And even if it's a small percentage, like I think sometimes people hear like ten percent, they think, "Oh, that's not that big." Uh, ten percent when people can live to about a hundred years old, uh, hundred years. With, yeah. You know, I mean, that's an extra ten years. That's pretty significant. Yeah. Um, actually, let me let me expand on that for just a second because I, I think this is actually that's a really important point, and I also think it's important to differentiate between lifespan, life expectancy, and potential effects on, on quality of life, health span, health span metrics. My intuition as well, and again, admittedly, this is a guess, my intuition is that in humans in particular, it's going to be much easier to move health span metrics than it is to move sort of maximal hmm. species lifespan. So I actually think it's a relatively easy lift to get most people a decade of extra health span. I actually think we can do that today with primarily lifestyle interventions. So if we could actually get most people to practice a relatively healthy lifestyle, I think they would regain that lost decade. That's what I call it, a lost decade. Most mm -hmm. people are giving up at least a decade of high quality life by practicing poor lifestyle choices in developed countries. I think I think there's I don't think too many people would argue with that. So I actually think that's important. If you you know like you said, a decades of that's actually a pretty long time. I was actually thinking about this just just the other day cuz I'm trying to write something about this. But uh so think back. So what are we 2023? Like what mm -hmm. was happening in 2013, right? And think about that length of time uh and all the stuff that has gone on since then. Some of it good, some of it maybe not so good, right? But if if if, if you could get an extra 10 years of really high quality life, that's a big deal. And I think that's actually not a very heavy lift. Like I said, I think we can do that today. I suspect that we could probably get 15, maybe even 20 years of extra high quality life 
using some of the interventions that we know about now that target the biology of aging. So I, I just say all that because I do think it is useful to appreciate that we're not talking about incremental effects, right? Most of what biomedical research and, and standard, um, what I would call reactive disease care medicine does is incremental. Mm -hmm. We're not talking about incremental effects. We're talking about things that could really have a a, a very, very large impact on people's productivity, their relationships, their experiences, their overall quality of life. And I don't think it's very unrealistic to think that we can we can do that just given the knowledge that we have today. So for the in intervention that was like 15 to 20 years, is that uh, lifestyle changes such as caloric restriction and then uh, therapies like adding rapamycin in there or some type of senescent cell uh, a strainer, uh, like senolytic. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Senolytic. So, uh, so, so, so I think the, I mean, the answer is conceptually. Yes. I'm mm. talking about those things that, that people in the field are studying today. So that would include potentially rapamycin would include potentially senolytics might include some of these circulate circulating factors that change with age that seem to impact the biology of aging would include hormones. So I would put them all sort of in that bucket. I do think it's important to say Right now, we don't have the tools to optimize all of those things for everybody at a personal level. So we may get into this because I know people are sort of interested in like, what's the optimal diet, how much protein mm. should I eat, all, all that stuff. We can certainly talk about that. But again, I think it's really important conceptually for people to appreciate that um, at the individual level, we don't really have tools to say what is optimal for you, what is optimal for me. So we're sort of left with these population level correlative uh recommendations okay so that i just say that because i think it, i think it's important to appreciate but but yeah i'm talking about lifestyle so first of all i would not say caloric restriction i actually am not a big believer in caloric restriction and, and we can we can unpack that i would say not being obese certainly so so uh uh appropriate uh nutritional uh intake but I'm not a huge fan of going below that. So, mm -hmm. so and, and again, personal guess might might or might not be right. But but I do think that certainly nutrition is critical, activity is critical, right? So so those kinds of things, like I said, I think if you if you were to really um, not even necessarily optimize, but just get 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 within the healthy range for the kind of somewhat obvious lifestyle. Uh, uh, interventions, diet, exercise, sleep. Um, I think most people would get a decade of extra healthy life from that, if not more. So yeah. And then on top of that, and this is where it gets to be a little bit speculative. So again, I also think it's important for people to appreciate we're talking about to some extent probabilistic thinking, right? There are very few certainties when we're trying to predict the future and in particular an individual's future health outcomes. It's more about risk reward and probabilities of something happening or not happening. So, so we have to just appreciate that. There's not a ton of certainty here, but, but now we're getting into sort of like um, probabilistic outcomes, given what we know today and the biomarkers we have available. Then I think when you start to put on top of the lifestyle interventions, things like rapamycin, um, you might be able to get beyond that lost decade to something bigger than that, maybe 15 years, maybe 20 years. What those interventions exactly are going to be for individuals, now we're talking personalized approaches, um, that's where, you know, I, I'm 
I'm optimistic and I expect that the diagnostics that are available to help guide us will improve mm. greatly over the next five years. And that would include things like the sort of currently popular, you know, biological aging tests, which aren't really biological aging tests in my views, but they are telling us something about the biology of aging. So I think as those biomarkers and diagnostics improve, we'll be able to start to get closer to personalized uh, recommendations for some of these interventions, which again, could include, you know, rapamycin, NAD precursors, autophagy activators, senolytics, circulating factors related to parabiosis, anti-inflammatories, right? Mitochondrial boosters. So there's a whole bunch of potential strategies to target the biology of aging that I think we can, we know enough about today to, to be thinking about targeted interventions. When you pair that with improvements in the biomarkers, I think the hope is that we'll be able to be able to, to, to get to more personalized recommendations. So working most recent, uh, well, least recent, what you were saying, if biomarkers that, you know, the aging related ones that people are talking about aren't uh, tracking aging directly, what do you think they are tracking then? Yeah. So, so I think it's important for people to appreciate that the biology of aging is immensely complicated, right? Um, uh, and we don't really, uh, let me say it this way. There's more that we don't understand about the biology of aging than we do understand. I just think people need to appreciate that. Many people who have not been in this field for very long, you know, will read some of the popular stuff that's out there and think, oh, it's all figured out, right? That's not mm -hmm. the case. So, so one way that is popular to think about the hallmarks of, or sorry, the biology of aging is through what are called the hallmarks of aging. I think most people who have sort of been around this space will have come across the hallmarks of aging at some point. So depending on who you ask, there are like between nine and 12 of these hallmarks of aging. And all the hallmarks are is a <clears throat> construct <clears throat> that people have, scientists have created to conceptualize what appear to be conserved mechanisms of biological aging that contribute to the functional declines and increased mortality risk that go along with aging across all of the different organisms where this has been studied. So those include things like mitochondrial dysfunction, accumulation of senescent cells, dysregulated cellular communication, dysregulated nutrient response, telomere shortening. So so there's there's a collection of these things, right? So what what is useful, hopefully, for people to understand is that's a conceptual construct, right? Mm -hmm. So it is an imperfect representation of reality. Underlying that construct is this extremely complicated network of interacting genetic and environmental factors. And some of the things in that network we know about, like mTOR, some of the things in that network appear to be useful, let's just say nodes in the network to tweak to impact that biology of aging. But there's a whole bunch of stuff under there that we don't understand. And what the currently existing tests are measuring is just a tiny fraction of the biology of aging. So let me give you an example. One of the somewhere between nine and 12 hallmarks of aging is epigenetic changes, epigenetic <laughs> dysregulation. So the currently most popular flavor of biological aging clocks are epigenetic uh, biological aging clocks. That's what most of the direct-to-consumer stuff that you can buy, and I don't recommend people do that other than for entertainment purposes only. Most of the direct-to-consumer biological aging clocks that you can buy only measure epigenetic changes. So that's one of the hallmarks of aging 
of which there are somewhere between nine and 12, of which that's only a fraction of the complexity of the biology of aging. So, so I would say all of the stuff that we can measure today, each of them will measure a different piece of the biology of aging. None of them are capturing all of the biology of aging. And so I think the, the unknown um, at this point is which, if any, of the existing tests give us useful information about future health outcomes, future disease risk, and maybe more importantly about response to interventions. That's an unknown. So what we do know is you can, you can take an uh, epigenetic aging test and you can then modify your lifestyle and come back in three months and take the test again. And maybe you see a Delta on that test, right? It changes. What we don't know is whether that change is meaningful in terms of your future disease risk or future health outcomes. There are people who will argue with me on that. There, were, there are people who will say, but we know that these some of these epigenetic tests can predict future health outcomes in, from long-term longitudinal studies and epidemiological studies that have already collected samples from people over many, many years. And that's true. What hasn't been shown is that for a given individual living in a given environment, right, today, which is different than it was 10 years ago or 20 years ago, that when you take one of these biological aging tests, that at the individual level, it's actually predictive for future health outcomes. That hasn't been done in people for understandable reasons, hasn't been done in mice for not understandable reasons. It should have been done by now. So I would mm -hmm. say there's a there's a disconnect at this point between what people are claiming these tests actually measure and what we know these tests actually measure. And that's an, that's an area that the field needs to do better, in my opinion. I've been reading a lot about what Brian Johnson's been doing, and he does a lot of these tests and says, hey, you know, I gained X amount or whatever. Uh, and I, I have been wondering what how useful are these types of things in general specifically and then with what he's doing it sounds like he's trying to build a case study kind of like if uh, phidias gauge and the railroad spike in terms of understanding like different parts of your brain if it's damaged um yeah. but do you think with brian johnson as an example that he's that he's gaining any benefit from these tests and then develop, uh, developing interventions like he's saying like oh i'm i'm, I'm like 10 years older than i should so I'm, I'm doing something that makes it smaller or, yeah. or lower reduces it is he gaining is he gaining anything from spending two million dollars in this way or is it uh just like healthy eating is more what he's gaining from the things he's doing yeah so I, i'm i'm a little bit hesitant to talk too specifically about what what brian johnson's doing mm. I think definitely he's gained attention for himself that's one thing yeah. that's for um, but beyond that, I, it's hard to know, right? So again, I think uh, there are aspects of what he's doing that I really like. I like the fact that he's sharing data. I like the fact that he's being honest about, you know, the fact that he's ex experimenting on, on himself. Um, I worry a little bit about the way it gets, gets presented. So as an example, I actually just saw a tweet from him today about how he said something about, you know, I measured rapamycin in my blood and I'm right in the optimal dose range, right? Mm -hmm. And my response is, you have no way of knowing if you're in the optimal dose range because nobody knows what the optimal dose range is because science hasn't figured it out yet. So I worry a little bit that he and his team do not understand the biology of aging sufficiently to be able to be commenting with any sort of authority on what the results he's getting actually are telling us. And I worry that that's being misinterpreted by the general population or at least the people who are paying attention to, to what he's doing. So that's my big concern there. I do think that many of these biomarkers, and he's 
the, the panel of biomarkers, at least from my understanding that he's looking at makes sense. Like I don't have, hmm. I'm not saying that he's doing it wrong. Right. But I, but I think that, I think that many of these biomarkers are the best biomarkers that we have currently. And it is a reasonable um, expectation that when you move those biomarkers in, in what we think is a positive direction, that your health has improved and that your risk of developing specific diseases of aging or dying go down. There's no certainty there. So again, this gets back to what I was saying before. This is all probabilistic, right? Mm -hmm. And so we can make a probabilistic uh, expectation of future health outcomes based on what we think we know today about these biomarkers. But we have to accept, first of all, there's no certainty. He could get run over by a bus tomorrow, right? If we're talking about mortality, that has nothing to do with the biomarkers. So there's no certainty there. He could just have bad luck, get a mutation in a cell that is highly uh, prone to cancer, right? And suddenly he's got metastatic cancer, right? So, so there is a, a stochastic component that the biomarkers simply don't pick up on. Um, and then secondly, the biomarkers that we know about today are imperfect, right? We have an imperfect knowledge base. Is it better mm -hmm. than it was 50 years ago? Sure. Will it be better than it is today, 50 years from now? Absolutely. So, so we're making predictions based on what we know today, which is limited. Um, and so our predictions are only as good as that limited knowledge base. And I, and I think what, again, many people who haven't spent enough time really thinking deeply about this biology don't appreciate is how little we actually know. So, so I don't know whether or not um, Brian is uh, biologically younger or biologically his age is aging more slowly than he was before he started this. My guess is he he probably is, although I worry a little bit that these sort of very, very extreme intervention protocols have hidden costs, right? And so one, one way to appreciate that that's pretty easy is caloric restriction. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we know, right, if you calorically restrict too much, that's going to be detrimental for longevity, right? There is a, there's a sweet spot <laughs> where you get the optimal benefit for lifespan. And if you go past that with caloric restriction, you're going to shorten lifespan. And that's probably true with almost any intervention that you think about. That's going to be true for rapamycin, I, I, I would guess, that, you know, you can't just keep taking more and more rapamycin and get more and more benefits, right? So I worry a little bit that these very extreme intervention protocols, and I would certainly put his protocol in the bucket of extreme, have hidden costs or they have, they're beyond the sort of point of optimal return. Now, it's my understanding that he's trying to guide the optimal return based on the biomarkers that his team has told him are important. Um, but I worry that there are, there are hidden costs. I also think something that's not often talked about by scientists in the field, because we don't really, you know, most of us are biologists, we don't really think about it, um, are the psychological risks associated with these sort of extreme lifestyle interventions. Um, and again, I think caloric restriction is a good example here. I know many people who have dabbled with flavors of caloric restriction, and I'm not a I'm not a psychiatrist. I'm not a psychologist, but I can absolutely tell you some of those people had significant psychological consequences from their dabbling with caloric restriction. And so I don't think we really pay a lot of attention to some of the potentially adverse events that are more on the psychological, mental wellness 
side of things, just because humans are super complicated animals, right? We're, mm-hmm. we're, we're funny animals and we live in this, 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 you know, social construct um, that is very different from studies that are carried out in mice, say in the laboratory. And we don't really, we don't really appreciate some of the consequences of these sort of extreme lifestyle or interventional uh, protocols that people are thinking about and the impact that that can have on psychological health and, and mental well-being. So I also, you know, worry a little bit about things like that when you see people start to, to, to try to advocate for these, what I, again, what I would call extreme lifestyle interventions. Yeah. And with uh, Brian in particular, I think it, 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 to some extent, it sounds like it could be like a game of telephone. That's the issue. You know, he has this scientist translating it to him and then he's translating it to the public. And uh, there's not someone like check, checking the suites to make sure it's accurate, because uh, if the, the research hasn't been done, then how do you know it's, it's optimal? Um, in terms of the, the psychological effects, uh, looking at caloric restriction, I, I have read that uh, there's a, a link between the gut biome and your psychology, like how well you're doing. Is, is that what you think is a, uh, causing that psychological harm? Oh. Or? Oh, it could be part of it. I certainly don't think mm. that's all of it. So, no. so certainly it could be the case that some of the, what, what we, what, what we would, buck, we, what we would lump under, you know, psychological consequences of uh, nutrient deprivation, caloric restriction. Some of that certainly could be related to signals coming from the microbiome. Again, the biology here, I, and I, and first of all, let me, let me say, I know much less about the biology of the microbiome and how it mm. interacts with the rest of our physiology than I do about the biology of aging. So, so now I'm speaking from, you know, a non-expert perspective, but I know something about it. And I certainly know something about biological complexity. And so I would, I would, I feel confident saying that our understanding of the microbiome and how it talks to the rest of the body, for lack of a better way of saying that, um, is even less well characterized than our understanding of the biology of aging. So, so absolutely, do I believe that our food, our dietary consumption, not just caloric restriction, but sort of overall, you know, what you eat, whether you're restricted or, or overeating or, or the composition of the diet, that has a huge effect on our physiology. Um, and that's at a bunch of different levels. It could be at the hormonal level. It could be at the, the effect on brain chemistry. So all of those things could go into impacting your psychological state and so it wouldn't surprise me if that's part of it. But I also think, you know, again, this is sort of what I was more alluding to is mm. um, human beings live in this really complicated social environment, right? And so much of our uh, behavior um, is around our interactions with other people, right? And diet plays a huge role in that, right? Uh, and so people who practice sort of extreme dietary uh, interventions, they change that social interaction. Um, and so that can have impacts as well. And being hungry <laughs> impacts your outlook on life, right? I mean, I think anybody who's ever been hungry, right? Really, really hungry recognizes that impacts all sorts of stuff. It impacts your emotional well-being. It impacts the way you interact with other people. And so that that's why I say, I think that those are things that the scientists who study caloric restriction or fasting or, or time-restricted feeding, they don't really pay attention to that because particularly in laboratory animals, that's not part of the equation, right? Mm. We're, we're looking at, you know, 
how long do they live? And, you know, what are their biomarkers of health look like? We're not, we're not paying attention to social interactions in general. And I'm not even sure you can really study those kinds of social interactions in the laboratory. So that's more what I was alluding to, but, um, but absolutely, I think you can layer on top of that, you know, the interaction between the microbiome and the diet and the rest of our physiology, and that's going to have an impact as well. And then uh, delving in more to caloric restriction, the before this this call and, and reading about you, I wouldn't have like caloric restriction would have been one of those like ten poles that people say, yeah, do that. That's good for longevity and health span. Um, what? So what are you seeing that says the opposite? And then I guess we you know maybe we could steel man why uh, we could be wrong on this, but sure. what? So uh, that there's a lot of people saying yes, that is good. You're saying there's there's concerns and, and doubts, especially if you go too low. So uh, if you could just like expand on that. Sure. So what I would there there's several reasons why I am hesitant to suggest that we should extrapolate from laboratory studies to humans in the specific context of caloric restriction. But I also think it's worth simply stating the data because again, the people who are arguing that caloric restriction always extends lifespan in mice and therefore we should recommend it to people either don't know the data or they're intentionally ignoring the data that suggests otherwise. The actual real data in the literature tells us that indeed caloric restriction in rodents, mice and rats can increase lifespan quite significantly. I think the largest effect that, that I've seen is about a 60% increase in average lifespan from about a 60% reduction in calories. That work was done in the 1980s by Roy Walford and, and Rick Weindrick and, and others. So absolutely, caloric restriction can increase lifespan. And along with that, caloric restriction can improve a whole bunch of health span metrics. Okay, that's rock solid. Mm -hmm. What's also rock solid is that only is true in certain genetic backgrounds. And if you look in other genetic backgrounds, you can get the same caloric restriction paradigm you can get no effect on lifespan or you can get shortening of lifespan. So that's true in mice, that's true in fruit flies, that's true in nematode worms, and that's true in budding yeast. All of the model organisms that people routinely study in the biology of aging in the laboratory, the effect of a given caloric restriction paradigm on lifespan is strongly genetically dependent. In all of those systems, it's a little bit, you know, we don't know the exact frequency, but it's roughly one third of the genetic backgrounds tested have their lifespan shortened by a given caloric restriction paradigm that will extend lifespan in other genetic backgrounds. Okay. Mm. That also is a fact. So it seems to me that it would be irresponsible to recommend to people an intervention that shortens lifespan in about 30% of the genetic backgrounds where it's been tested in the laboratory. Okay, that just, I mean, I don't, I, I don't quite understand the disconnect here where for people who are saying caloric restriction, go do it, right? It just doesn't make mm -hmm. sense because we don't really understand what it is about those genetic backgrounds that are harmed by caloric restriction, why they're harmed, right? So, so we can't really predict in humans. And, and that's again, not even considering the psychological consequences of caloric restriction approach in, in people. So that's, that's one reason why I'm not super bullish about caloric restriction. The other is that there is a bunch of misinformation out there around intermittent fasting and time-restricted feeding. So intermittent, and I would, I'm going to define those this way because I know that there's some lack of clarity around what those, 
those terms actually even mean. So I'm going to say intermittent fasting is a fast of 24 hours or more. So at least one full circadian sort of cycle. Uh, Time-restricted feeding is limiting the uh, hours within a given 24-hour cycle in which you eat to say eight or 10 or 12, whatever the flavor of uh, time-restricted feeding you're talking about. Okay. So there is this, again, misperception. Um, I would actually take it as far as to say a misinformation campaign that time-restricted feeding and intermittent fasting clearly have health benefits in people. Okay. I don't think that's actually been, been shown. I think it's true for some people, but on average, I don't think that's that's been shown. What we know in mice is neither of those interventions significantly increase lifespan unless they are paired with caloric restriction. In other words, if you time-restricted feed or intermittent fast, but the animals end up eating the same amount over say a month or years, the effect on lifespan is essentially zero. There might be a very, very small three, four, 5% uh, effect on lifespan from intermittent fasting that's isocaloric. That is a little bit unclear in the literature, but it's nowhere near the magnitude of effect you get from caloric true caloric restriction. So that often gets unfortunately ignored when this now is talked about in the, the sort of popular sphere, right? So intermittent fasting in the absence of caloric restriction, even in la- in laboratory animals, very little evidence that it targets the biology of aging in any really meaningful way, I would say. So I'm, um, I think it's fair to say frustrated by mm-hmm. the way that this is misrepresented for the general public in, in the, the um, non-academic sphere. Even in academic review papers, it's misrepresented. So that's partly what's leading me to, to, to maybe push back on caloric restriction and intermittent fasting a little bit stronger than I than I otherwise would, because I feel like I'm kind of battling a misinformation campaign that's out there by people who really want to advocate for this, this kind of a, a dietary strategy. So here's what I would say. And again, this is just my opinion, right? Take it for what it's worth. Um, my opinion is that intermittent fasting and time-restricted feeding can be useful tools for some people, not for everybody, but for some people to maintain a healthy body weight, okay? So there are some people who find it easier to maintain a healthy body weight and not overeat by practicing intermittent fasting or time-restricted feeding. I don't see much evidence for benefits in people outside of that. Doesn't mean there aren't any, just we don't have a lot of data to support that. The other thing I'd say is I have some real personal concerns around intermittent fasting in particular, and the negative effects that that can have on body composition. So I said that intermittent fasting, and again, let's just take a simplistic version of intermittent fasting. So two days a week, you don't eat anything, right? Some people do this. I think that can help those people to maintain a healthy body weight because they then don't feel like they have to restrict themselves on the non-fasting days. They can eat more Mm -hmm. on those days than they burn. Um, but I worry about the long-term effects of that sort of a strategy on body composition for two reasons. One is we know that a prolonged fast will preferentially degrade lean mass over fat mass. Both will come down for sure, but you're going to lose lean mass, muscle mass, um, which is a bad idea in general. Um, secondarily, this is just my own sort of, you know, uh, people that I know who do this. And again, I know a lot of people who've tried a lot of these different things. 
um, people who I know who've tried intermittent fasting tend not to, to focus as much on the quality of their diet on the days they're not fasting. Now, that's not going to be true for everybody, but I think, unfortunately, and this is maybe a psychological thing, I think there's a psychological um, relaxation of your dietary quality because you think, well, I'm fasting two days a week, so on the other days I can eat whatever I want. Again, I think from an sort of overall health perspective, that's counterproductive. You'd be better off, in my view, eating a nutritious, high-quality diet most of the time and maybe taking a cheat day once in a while if you want to than fasting two days a week and eating garbage the other five days of, of the week. And unfortunately, I think some people fall into that sort of, you know, psychological trap of thinking that the two days of fasting is going to make up for the five days of, of eating a typical Western diet. And it doesn't, in my view. So I know that was sort of a long digression, but I think this is unfortunately a a, a really complicated topic mm -hmm. that a lot of people are confused about and they want somebody to tell them this is what you should do. And so it's very easy for a talking head to get up there and say, use my intermittent fasting protocol guaranteed to promote longevity, which is, you know, BS. Mm -hmm. So uh, for the different routes you can go down and helps versus hurting, uh, would it be useful to study like maybe like a genetic test of some kind to, to differentiate like how it would affect different people. So then we could say, Hey, if, if uh, you're looking for uh, to increase your lifespan and you fall within this marker with this test, this will yeah. most likely be use more useful to you to make I, it more think, like granular. I think if we had the, if we had the information to know what to look for in a genetic mm. test, yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's where we would love to get to. I would also say it's probably not, it's probably not even primarily genetic. It's partly genetic. I would guess in humans. So again, this is where you really have to, to, to differentiate between um, what's been done in the laboratory and what the real world is like, right? So in the laboratory, we're controlling the environment. So the studies where people have looked across genetic backgrounds in say mice, though all of those mice were kept in a very controlled uh, homogeneous environment, meaning it was the same across all of the different strains. People aren't like that, right? We're genetically complex, but we're even more environmentally complex. So again, this is my speculation because nobody's ever done the experiment in laboratory animals, but it's my speculation that the environmental diversity in humans will have as much, if not more of an impact on individual response to dietary restriction than the genetic component. Both are gonna be important. Maybe they'll both be equal, but but my speculation is environment's going to be even more important. So what I would say we really need, and again, we're kind of going back to a topic we touched on already, are quantitative biomarkers that are predictive for biological aging, future health outcomes, mortality risk. And then what you would do if you had those that you were very confident in is you would titrate the nutritional strategy that you want to take to those biomarkers. And again, that's kind of what people like Brian Johnson are doing. You know, the question is, do they have the right set of biomarkers and is the protocol that's being implemented too extreme? That we, we can't really answer right now. But conceptually, that's the approach, right? You've got biomarkers that you believe in and you titrate your nutritional strategy to those biomarkers. Now, again, and this is where I think it's maybe a mistake to focus too much on caloric restriction, or even just on diet is all of that's in the context of the rest of your life, right? So mm -hmm. the optimal nutritional strategy is going to depend somewhat on your 
activity level, your exercise regimen, right? And it's going to depend somewhat on the quality of your sleep. And it's going to depend also on your family and home life and social environment and all of that stuff. So trying to think about these things in isolation in the human situation, um, I think can lead to over obviously oversimplification, but also some mis- um, interpretation or or misguidance in, in giving people information that's actually detrimental to their long-term health. So again, and this is my personal view, um, I wouldn't spend much time worrying about dietary restriction or caloric restriction per se. I would try to focus on maintaining a healthy body weight, eating a high quality diet, right? And again, you can get as into the weeds on what a high quality diet is as you want to. You can get too far into the weeds in my view, but in general, cut out the highly processed crap, cut out the, the food that's high in sugar, eat whole foods. That's a really good place to start. And then try to maintain a healthy body weight. And then I would say, rather than caloric restrict, re, calorically restricting, put on top of that a strength training regimen. So you, exercise is important. I think both cardiovascular exercise and resistance training is important. But I think where most people fall down is in the strength training to build and maintain lean mass. My personal view is that's a much more likely to be successful strategy for most people right now than cutting out physical activity and trying to intermittent fast or calorically restrict. Yeah, I was recently talking to a OBGYN and she uh, almost like shook me when I, we talked about the subject because for her patients who are uh, primarily, yeah, they're all female because um, she's OBGYN, the, uh, that they are just told to just run, you know, but there's yeah. a plateau where you're not going to have any benefit. And so she's been yeah. having, she's, you know, she's noticed that if people just build muscle, they'll burn fat and maintain their healthy lifestyle much easier. And so she's trying to get more people on it. She's like, they've been lying to me my whole life. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. And so it's like, no, I, I, that's a really lot. good point. And I think, I mean, I think you, I think you nailed it. Um, unfortunately, and I don't know all the reasons for this. Cause I haven't honestly, haven't really been paying attention to a lot of the recommendations in the, in that, that sphere around, you know, exercise for the, the general public. Um, mm -hmm. But it is absolutely the perception, and I see this all the time. In fact, my wife was was telling me today about a, a list that that she's on. Where, and again, I think it's mostly women, but I think this is true for for men as well. But but on the list, the recommendations that people were giving to each other were, well, just go out and walk. Just go out and walk, right? Which is good. I mean, it's not bad. It's not bad advice. But you really need to pair it with a strength training regimen to, to build and, and maintain muscle mass. And that has sort of gotten lost, I think, in the messaging that has gotten out to the general public, broadly speaking. And I think particularly, and again, I could be wrong on this, but, but it's my um, impression that particularly for people in their 40s, 50s, 60s, it may be even more skewed that way, where the, the messaging has really been more around get out and walk 3000 steps a day, 5000 steps a day, you know, maybe run or ride a bike, which is all good advice. But I think, again, this is my personal feeling. If you're only going to do one type of exercise, I, I would say strength training, resistance training is probably more important for that demographic than just getting out and walking. Obviously, I think you should do both. Um, and for a whole bunch of reasons, and I don't know how much you want to get into it, but but what you alluded to is correct. 
muscle as a tissue, lean mass is immensely powerful from a metabolic perspective at promoting and maintaining health, particularly as we get older. And the only way you're going to, you're going to build and maintain lean mass is to use your muscles. And the best way to do that is by strength or resistance training. And so, yeah, I agree. I think from a, if there's one message that would be really useful from a health perspective to get out there to, to the average person, it's like, you know, don't believe what you've been told about only walking, do some resistance training. The other thing I'd say is there are lots of different ways you can do resistance training. If you don't want to go to the gym and, you know, use barbells and dumbbells, you can do body weight exercises in your home. Like you don't have to, you don't have to pick only one type of resistance training to effectively build and maintain lean muscle mass. Mm -hmm. And you can, um, depending on uh, your where you are financially, you can you know re retool you know old milk jugs to so fill up with water, right. and it, yeah, there's, gets, all, sort, there's all sorts of ways to to tackle this for sure. Yeah, the uh, and I I think some to add to that is the the fact that like muscle works for you when you're trying to do these things. Where if you're using like if you're just doing an aerobic exercise or whatever, uh, you'll burn during that time, but then you go back to doing nothing. Muscle just like it's just like a it's a very needy. Uh, tissue so it's kind of like the the nice thing that we're talking about um as like one way i think about it it's like i can build muscle and uh and eat more and, yeah. <laughs> i mean there is some truth to that right you're right yeah. if, if you are the same body weight and you have more muscle probably your basal metabolic rate is going to be higher and and your your caloric consumption to maintain body weight is also going to be higher that's absolutely true i would say equally probably more important than that is again when people get in especially in their 50s 60s 70s um having a higher lean mass, clearly no question about it. Like I think the epidemiology is clear on this. When you, when you normalize for body weight, having a higher proportion of lean mass is associated with a whole bunch of good stuff, lower mortality, lower risk of injury, uh, lower risk of a whole bunch of different age-related diseases. Um, maintaining function, again, I don't, I don't know about you, but for me, as, I, as I'm getting older, for me, maintaining function and being able to do what I want to do, <laughs> you know, as long as possible is really, really important. Mm -hmm. And having, being strong, having muscles that actually work for you is a big part of that, right? Avoiding injury, having the ability to go out and do what you want to do, being strong is really important for that. And so I think this is another reason why, you know, focusing on building and maintaining lean mass is, is really important. And I just want to, I want to mention something specific here because you will see, um, I, don't, I don't know why, you will see people sometimes grossly misinterpret the data that's out there around lean body mass and health outcomes um, from epidemiological studies. So simply appreciate this. Obese people have higher lean mass. There are many reasons for that. One of them being they're carrying around more body weight, so their muscles have to be bigger, okay? If you correlate just lean body mass to health outcomes, you can find cases where more lean body mass is associated with poorer health outcomes. That can, as far as I can tell, that can all be attributed to the fact that, that those people who have high lean body mass but poor health outcomes are obese. When you, when you normalize it to body composition, which is really what we're talking about, having higher lean body mass 
in general, I'm sure there's a point where it becomes suboptimal. Bodybuilders, we could we could talk about. That's a complicated situation with drug use and all of that. But in general, unless you're on the extreme end of the lean body mass, body composition um, index, having a higher lean body mass, lower fat mass is generally a good idea, um, at least into your 60s. Once we get into 70s and 80s, there's some evidence that having a little bit more fat also is associated with positive health outcomes, but certainly into your 60s, do everything you can to build and maintain lean body mass would be my recommendation. What would um, what does fat do when it clicks over in your, your 60s that it doesn't do during later periods of time? Yeah, that's a good question. I don't think we really, I don't think we really know at, at this point. There is, I have seen hypotheses around the idea that, you know, as we age, a lot of stuff goes wrong. One of the things that goes wrong is the ability of our organs and tissues throughout our body to efficiently utilize energy sources. And so maybe having a fat store uh, is somewhat beneficial from that perspective could also be somewhat mechanical, right? I mean, I think, um, we're not, and again, we're not talking about people who are morbidly obese. We're talking about, you know, within the normal to slightly overweight body range, having a higher percent fat mass, uh, is associated again, correlation causation, we have to be a little bit careful is associated with reduced risk of mortality and, and some age related diseases. It could also be, you know, and this is pure speculation on my part, but that having a little bit of padding isn't a bad thing, right? We know that getting injured once you get in certainly into your seventies and eighties is a big risk factor for mortality. And so maybe just, maybe just having a little bit more padding is actually beneficial. You bump against something, you fall down, you know, it's a big difference when you're in your seventies, if you trip and fall down and you get up with a bruise versus you break your hip, right? If you break your hip, your mortality risk goes through the roof over the next mm -hmm. six months. If you get up and you just have a bruise, no big deal, right? You're, you're okay. So that could be part of it as well. Honestly, I don't know. There is one interesting tidbit I'll just mention. I have no idea what the mechanism is, but you know how we were talking about those caloric restriction studies across a bunch of different genetic backgrounds. Some get the benefit, some get harmed, some are right mm -hmm. in the middle, um, no effect. One thing that anti-correlated, I guess I should say with, let me see. Yeah, anti, no, the correlated, sorry, correlated with the lifespan benefit was the ability of the animals to maintain body fat under mm. caloric restriction. In other words, the genetic backgrounds that maintained more body fat when calorically restricted were the ones that got the bigger benefit. The ones mm. that lost body fat when calorically restricted the most were the ones that were harmed. That Now, that's not a perfect one-to-one, -one, but there was a, a significant correlation there. So again, there could be some connection here between the network that underlies the biology of aging and ties into metabolism and how that impacts, you know, fat storage versus fat metabolism that we just don't understand yet. So, I think one, if you were to summarize a little bit, like if we were to synthesize what we've talked about thus far, it's basically like on one level, it's like humans are really, really complex. There's so many different things going on and it sounds it sounds unbelievably complex and almost stressful to imagine trying to piece out one little aspect. And so I'm wondering as like a thought exercise, if we gave you like a Bell Labs and limited funding and just like an army of people to research the, you know, the, the, you know, the fat uh, 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 biomarker or something like that, or any of these different uh, things. So we could have like, we could reduce the, the dark matter in terms of longevity and health span that currently exists in these fields as we've discussed what would be some of the areas that you'd want to 
push for i mean that's a really really big thing sure. so i'm trying to like limit it as much as yeah. i can but it's just like it's so complicated it feels like there, there would be some benefit in like researching out some like really esoteric stuff so that you could then build up and have a better sense of how things work and so it's it's to some extent it's like how do you know if you're building a solid foundation if we if we don't have the full foundation yet yeah uh, i mean it's a really good good question so i'll i'll, I'll tell you three areas if i like mm -hmm. had unlimited resources that i would that I would focus more on than the, the field yeah. is. Okay. One is human clinical trials. I think, I think that you're right. This the the system is immensely complex, but the only way we are really ever going to find out what the impact is in humans of a given intervention is to test the intervention in humans. I don't think anybody would disagree with that. We can we can argue back and forth about rapamycin and metformin and NAD precursors and do they work? Do they don't work? It's just going to be arguing back and forth until we actually get the data. So I would invest substantially in well-controlled, well-designed human clinical trials, not for lifespan, because I don't think that's pragmatic. And plus, I don't want to wait 20 years to get the result. But looking at a at a multitude of functional and molecular measures of function that we believe are important. And I think we know enough about functional declines that go along with aging in people right now to do that. So I think it's all doable. And so that would be area number one. And I think that would be extremely expensive, but conceptually, it's not that hard to think about what you would actually do. You just need the resources to, to do it. And I think we've got a we've got a you know reasonably good list of things we could test, like rapamycin, like metformin, like NAD precursors, like autophagy activators, right? Senolytics, right? There's a bunch of things we could test. The, the problem is right now, people are doing some of that, but the clinical trials are crap, to be honest with you, right? And I I mean, I guess I shouldn't say that quite so bluntly, but none of them are large enough to really answer the question. So what we get are 20 person, 40 person, you know, phase one, phase two, sort of kind of, that's what they're called, clinical trials that give a hint, but, you know, you're kind of left thinking, okay, maybe, maybe it worked, maybe it didn't. I don't know. We need a bigger clinical mm -hmm. trial. Somebody just needs to do the damn bigger trial, in my view, <laughs> to answer the question. So that'd be one thing. Um, uh, another thing would be expanding the research in companion dogs. So we haven't yet talked about the Dog Aging Project, probably won't have time today, but I'm happy to come on in the future if you want to talk about the Dog Aging Project in detail. But you know, this is something that I've been involved with is this large scale longitudinal study of aging in companion dogs, pet dogs living with their owners. Um, and then we also have one clinical trial of rapamycin in pet dogs. The the huge advantage, right, there are several, but, but one huge advantage of doing a clinical trial like that in pet dogs is we can actually measure whether rapamycin can increase lifespan because dogs age biologically about seven to 10 times faster than people do. Meaning if you design the trial appropriately, starting in middle age in a three-year time period, you can actually statistically determine whether or not rapamycin or a different intervention increases lifespan and improves health span metrics in, in pet dogs. Now, let's say you're successful at that. Does that prove the intervention is going to work in people? No, it doesn't prove it. But I do think it gives you a lot more confidence that it's probably going to work in humans. Plus, you've extended the lifespan and health span of people's pets. That's a big deal in and of itself. So I would expand that. I, I, I And I mean, if people are, are starting to do this, I would just accelerate it. I think that there is huge untapped potential 
for geroscience discovery and clinical trial interventions uh, validation in companion animals. So that'd be area number two that I would put a bunch of resources into. And then area number three is um, getting back to this idea I talked about before, which is that, you know, what we understand about the biology of aging pales in comparison to what we don't understand. And I worry actually probably more than I should that the field has become very narrow over the last 10 years. And what I mean by that is, while there are many more people interested in the biology of aging and studying the biology of aging, the breadth of research that people are studying is actually quite small compared to what it was 20 years ago. Almost everybody, and this is actually, you might even attribute this somewhat to the hallmarks of aging paradigm because it's become difficult for people to think outside of that paradigm and think about what don't we know. So almost everybody who's working in the field right now, whether it's in basic research or in the biotech community, is focusing on something related to the hallmarks of aging and targets that we already know about. And yet these, the, the what I would call the intervention space, right? So if you think about all the possible interventions you could test for effects on aging, the intervention space is essentially infinite. So, so we are, we've explored a tiny, tiny fraction of the intervention space. And very few people are thinking creatively about how do we look beyond what we already know. So I would put a large amount of resources into trying to, to encourage people to develop novel sort of inner innovative approaches to explore the longevity intervention space. And there are a couple of reasons for that. One is, you know, as I've said a couple of times already, I believe that there's a lot we don't know about the biology of aging. There's a lot that remains to be discovered. And the only way we're going to discover it is to look for it. I also believe that... Um, Given what people are studying now, it's very unlikely we are going to find new interventions of large effect size, okay? And we could talk about epigenetic reprogramming. That's the only thing that I think has the potential for large effect size in the current crop of things people are studying. But I think if you look back over the last, you know, 20 years, even over the last 100 years, so we talked about caloric restriction. Caloric restriction, I said this earlier, the most I've seen is a 60% increase in lifespan from caloric restriction. And that was a study that was done in the 1980s. We've known about caloric restriction since 1930s. Why hasn't anybody done better than caloric restriction in terms of magnitude of effect in the last hundred years? Hmm. Rapamycin, 2009 is when rapamycin was first shown to increase lifespan in mice. Why is rapamycin still the gold standard in terms of effect size and reproducibility for longevity interventions, drug, small molecule longevity interventions. So I think you can make a case that intervention discovery has stagnated in the field. And I would argue that's because people have become very narrow in the way they're thinking about the biology of aging. So I would try to blow that up. I think we need to blow up the intervention pipeline and be able to screen hundreds of thousands optimally millions of interventions to find new things that affect longevity. And that's kind of the premise behind Aura Biomedical, which you mentioned I'm in, involved in. That's a spin out from my lab. Certainly, I'm not going to argue that's the only way to approach this problem, but it was my solution or start towards a solution of what I viewed as a, as a problem for the field. So, so Aura has developed a platform that we are now scaling um, to measure hundreds of thousands of interventions, small molecule could be genetic for effects on lifespan. Um, we're actually just 
just now sort of have gotten the technology to the point where I think we can realistically propose a million intervention study, right? Five years, a million interventions to find out how big can we, how big of an effect can we get on longevity? Just to give people a feel for what that means, if you look mm -hmm. in drug age, which is currently the largest database of small molecule interventions um, uh, for lifespan across all organisms, there are something like 1500 drugs that have been tested for effects on lifespan. Okay. So if we go from 1500 to a million, we're going to find really interesting stuff. So those are the kinds of ideas that I think I would like to see more people in the field thinking about to try to help us get past what I view as sort of a bottleneck right now that's limiting the potential of where the field can go. Um, so that's the other area that I would I would focus resources on. To do a million interventions at a time, are you looking at something like organ or well, I guess in addition to this, what do you think about organ or organisms on a chip to uh, measure health span and aging and right. then uh, and then slide into how would you do a million if the, the best so far has been 15,000 over several years? 1,500. 1,500? Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I added in zero. I was being generous. Yeah. So, okay. So, yeah, good good question. So, first thing I would say is I'm biased towards uh, what are called in vivo whole animals, mm. right? So, I think, if, I think if your goal is to find things that affect longevity and health span, you need to look in a model system where you can actually measure longevity and health span. Okay. Otherwise you're stuck using, you know, what are called uh, surrogate phenotypes or secondary phenotypes that you think somehow correlate with longevity and health span. So that's my bias. And so what we developed um, and have spun out at Aura is a, a high throughput robotic system coupled with artificial intelligence mm -hmm. to do whole animal lifespan and health span moder um, uh, measurements in C. elegans at scale, okay? So, and, and I, we could get into the details of all that, but it's probably not worth it. Suffice it to say that we think we can build this pretty reasonably to a scale where you can do a million interventions over a few years. It's not gonna be simultaneous, but we can scale it easily to the point where we can do a million interventions over a few years, okay? In whole animals. So then the question is, could you do something like that in cell culture, in, organize, in organoids? Um, you could certainly develop screening platforms that uh, screen for something in cell culture and organoids that might be related to lifespan and health span. You can't measure lifespan and health span in those systems. So you are making an assumption that you know what to measure that is gonna be predictive for lifespan and health span. And I think that can absolutely work. Here's the problem. Your assumption is based on what we already know. So again, mm -hmm. my whole starting point was, there's a bunch of stuff we don't know <laughs> that we probably should, should find out. All of the systems that are, that are designed to use, you know, uh, in vitro cell-based assays or systems that are using artificial intelligence to predict novel longevity interventions today, those are all based on the knowledge base that we already have, right? So let me give you an example that I think everybody can conceptually uh, appreciate. There are, there are people who have taken approaches where they say, okay, we know that rapamycin is interesting and metformin is interesting and NAD precursors are interesting for their effects on aging, right? Based on studies in laboratory animals. 
So if we treat cells and culture with those molecules, we can see what happens. And let's just say we're looking at gene expression. We can see how gene expression changes from those molecules in cell culture. And then we can take a whole library of small molecules and try to find new molecules that you know, look something like these molecules that we think are interesting in terms of gene expression. And then maybe those will be new drugs that will have an effect on longevity, right? And that's perfectly reasonable. The problem is the only thing you're gonna find are things that act like the things you started from, rapamycin, metformin, NAD precursors. Are they gonna be better? Maybe, probably not. So my view is what we really need to do is find new things, maybe combinations of things. And again, I really am biased to the idea that the only way you're gonna be successful at doing that is to do it in a system where you can actually measure what you're interested in, which is lifespan and health span. Now, is C. elegans the best system? I don't know, we thought it was simply because we knew we could develop the technology. Could If you could do it in mice, that would be great. Do you know how much it would cost to do a million molecule longevity study in mice? We actually did the math. It's I think just for the animals, it's like one and a half billion dollars when you wow. put all the personnel and facilities cost and all that on top of it. It, it gets to be pretty expensive. So let's just say it's two billion dollars to do that that million molecule screen in mice. We can do it in worms for probably five million, right? So mm -hmm. you know, I, I think there's a pragmatic component here as well. Um, maybe maybe you could do it in flies, maybe killifish, you know, maybe planaria. I don't know. There are options. We we figured we could build it in worms and we built it now. And so we're pretty confident we can execute. I'm not going to argue worms are the only place to do it, but I do believe strongly that you're going to be much more likely to get the answer you want at the end of the day if you're actually measuring the phenotype that you're interested in. And from my perspective, lifespan and health span are the phenotypes that we're interested in. Mm -hmm. And we uh, we touched on the subject with uh, your dog project, but I want to expand on it because I think it's something that people don't talk about, which is the quality of love and how it affects people's just health span and, 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 your, yeah. and your life in general. There's many stories of people who their loved one passes and it's like six months later and they're gone as well. And I, yeah. I, I don't I don't I don't know like clinically I, I don't think they they die from heartbreak, but I feel like there's something there to the effect of like. You know, I think sometimes people say like get three hugs a day or whatever. But um, what are, what are your thoughts on that that correlation between you know love, health span, and, and having a good long life? Uh, well, so I I, I think it, uh, one thing I would say is you know it, so first of all I'll dive into like the the actual connections to health in a minute. But you know again I'm a pretty pragmatic guy. And uh, my view is if you're miserable, what's the point of living a living longer, right? So mm -hmm. I think joy, happiness, love, however you want to kind of frame that. If you're missing that piece, I would say you don't have, certainly don't have optimal health span. And I would say it's probably hard to have good health span if you're not happy, right? If you're miserable. So that's kind of the first thing I would, I would say about that. But you're absolutely right. So, you know, different people have, you know, a different number of pillars of health, right? But I kind of, I kind of like the idea of, of, you know, four pillars, right? So I would say nutrition, activity, which would encompass exercise, sleep. And, you know, then I don't know what the right word is. I've been actually trying to think about what's the right word for the fourth pillar. Is it, you know, wellness? Is it happiness? Is it joy? Maybe love? I don't know. But it sort of encapsulates for me, um, all of that. And I, and absolutely, that's very real. And I think also we have to recognize these pillars are interconnected, right? So mm -hmm. that's easy to see if you look at the connection between nutrition and exercise. We already talked about that, right? The optimal nutrition is going to be different depending on what sort of exercise people are doing. 
It's also easy to see with sleep. There's no question that sleep impacts the biology of aging. The biology of aging impacts sleep. No question. Um, it's a little bit less characterized, I think, when we start to get into, you know, wellness, anxiety, stress, fear. Those are sort of, you know, anxiety, stress, fear, sort of the negative side of it, joy, happiness, love, the positive side of it. But I would say those are all sort of touching on the same biological component, I'm guessing, at least overlapping. And um, it's really, it's clearly important. Um, there's been some work done on the interactions between chronic stress and the biology of aging and longevity. So we can point to, you know, molecular connections at that level. Certainly some work done on um, brain chemistry changes with aging, which are going to be impacted by anxiety, fear, stress, and also impact the perception of anxiety, fear, stress. Um, so there's some connections there. But I think what you were getting at, which is something that is less studied, but 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 maybe equally, if not more important, is how our interactions with other humans and potentially companion animals can also impact our, our mm -hmm. biology. And, and that's real, no question about it. I mean, there is some work showing, you know, for example, that humans interacting with their pets, that can actually show a reduction in stress markers in the human. Interestingly, it also shows a reduction in the stress mm -hmm. markers in the pet, right? So there's clearly biological connections there, which are really important. And, and I think, but I think also pretty poorly understood. So, you know, at this point, what I would, again, I would go back to sort of my pragmatic answer to begin with, which is, you know, I think people need to think about and try to figure out, you know, what can they do in their own lives to sort of increase their joy, their happiness, right? Their wellness, um, reduce stress, reduce anxiety. I know that's like easier said than done, but I think you have to start by thinking about it. And there are lots of people who have spent much more time thinking about this than I have, who have recommendations on, on how to, how to approach that, but paying attention to it is where you have to start. And, but, but absolutely, I would put that up there, you know, again, you know, if I had to say from a, from a purely pragmatic perspective, if you're not happy, the rest of the other stuff doesn't, it matters a lot less, right? Mm -hmm. So that's gotta be, maybe that's where you start. I don't know, but it should be a part of everybody's equation here when they're trying to think about their overall health span. Yeah, I was reading recently and I have some friends, uh, relatives that are in um, high school and stuff and that COVID has really shattered how people socialize now. And so, you know, how people form bonds or relationships, that happy component of a balanced life is uh, for people who like, grew up under it apparently it's it's much harder now so um is there a, a person in particular that you point at those people who are you know trying to i guess everyone you needs more love and more happiness and they're enjoying their life is there a researcher out there that you'd recommend people check out you know that's a good question i don't have an answer for you yeah. uh, i should i will i will do some homework um i i'll add I to the show I, notes I, yeah. I, I wish i did uh i don't I mean, again, I think I think the specific case of COVID, right? There are certainly people who are thinking along the lines of what are the impacts of COVID on social development, uh, particularly for younger people who, you know, who went through COVID, you know, say when they were in high school or college, important social forming years. That's way outside my area area of ex mm -hmm. expertise. Um, what I would say though is, uh, while I think it's important certainly to pay attention to that. Um, 
human beings are pretty resilient, right? So I think we went through this period of sort of extremes, all sorts of extremes, <laughs> the political spectrum, the social spectrum, right? We went, and maybe we're still in it. I don't want to say, I don't want to suggest that we're out of the woods yet. But having said that, I think that um, there will be long lasting impacts from the pandemic, but I also think people are pretty resilient. So I think a lot of the a lot of the impacts, psychological impacts, social impacts will, you know, come down with time. And so I guess I, I guess where I would land again, without having thought a lot about this, is you know, for most of us, we're hoping that we've got multiple decades of health span ahead of us, right? So I would really think about um psychological well-being, emotional well-being from that perspective, right? You've got decades to go. And so what can you do in that context to optimize your emotional, psychological well-being? And I think one thing for sure that, that, that this seems to me that the data clearly backs up is forming strong community, social, family connections now is important for the future. And so I, I don't, I don't, I mean, again, this can be for different for everybody. I can say from my own personal perspective, I've spent more time thinking about this in the last year. Um, and I can say I'm pretty, probably pretty typical for, you know, a male in his early fifties where I didn't spend as much time as I probably should have thinking about friends and those, those kinds of social connections. And so I'm making a dedicated effort to do better going forward. And I and I think probably most people can do that, right? So mm -hmm. forming real bonds with other human beings, I think, is a place to start. Is that going to solve all your problems? No, but it's going to, it's going to, you can think of it like exercise, like exercise for your body. This is exercise for your community, right? Mm -hmm. If you don't exercise your community, that may be one of that may be the pillar that crashes down first when you're older, right? So paying attention to that now, I think makes a ton of sense. And then uh, I have a bunch of I have a, some fan questions, and then some just rapid fire, you know, you can just like as, as quickly as you feel appropriate. But okay. this one, this one's for, for me. Uh, when you close your eyes before you, you know, when you wake up in the morning, and you look before you look in the mirror, how old do you feel mentally? Like, do you do, is there an age associated with your internal feeling of age? <laughs> oh, that's a good question. I, I don't know that I've ever thought about it. Mm -hmm. uh, young, I guess I would say, you know, but I, but I, I mean, look, my wife will tell you I'm a little kid at heart. I'm a, I'm a 13 year old mentally. Mm. So yeah, that's probably about where I start. <laughs> yeah. And then, uh, so last call 2021 says there's a weird dichotomy of IGF one's role in biology of aging. Some super, super, super centarian populations have a downregulated IGF-1 receptors and knocking out IGF-1 receptors in mice causes them to be smaller but live longer. But there seems to be some measurable effect on the ability to maintain muscle mass as some sort of the therapeutic boost of life. Um, I'm trying to like skim. This is a giant paragraph. The uh, the 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 basically they would love to hear your thoughts on um, the connection between IGF-1, mTOR. Uh, through the PI3K forward <laughs> yeah. slash it's gonna be hard to give a short answer to this question. So let me, <laughs> okay. I, I will okay. not do it justice, but I, let me, let me, first of all, just try to summarize what I think the question is asking, which is yeah. in the, in the mouse models in particular, but also in nematodes and, and fruit flies, turning down 
insulin IGF-1 like signaling increases lifespan. That was mm-hmm. one of the first things that was discovered. Cynthia Kenyon, Tom Johnson with DAF2 and age one, that's in that pathway. So these are connected to mTOR. And the, the, the common theme is these are growth promoting pathways during development. So what we know is that all the way up through mice, mutants that have reduced growth signaling through these pathways during development live longer and they appear to age more slowly in the laboratory. There are humans that have mutations in these pathways. Some are probably moderate reduction in function that you can find enriched in centenarians, but there's no evidence yet that that's causal for their ability to live to 100 or or more. And then there are extreme versions like the Larone uh, population, so dwarfism, right, where we have severe downregulation of growth hormone signaling and IGF-1 signaling in, in people. They don't live longer, but they do seem to be protected against certain age-related diseases, some forms of cancer, things like that. So I think it is absolutely the case in humans that there is a similar relationship, meaning if you substantially reduce growth hormone, IGF-1, particularly during development, your risk for many age-related diseases decreases, and you may be aging biologically more slowly. However, as we've already talked about in this conversation, humans are funny animals. There are complicated social consequences and probably uh, environmental interaction consequences to being very, very small, right? And in some cases, maybe frail. So I don't think it's, I think it's unlikely that significant reductions in growth hormone and IGF-1 signaling, say in middle age, would be net beneficial, at least to a large extent in humans. And this gets complicated really fast because, you know, there's this weird um, dichotomy that we don't completely understand, which is that reducing mTOR seems to be beneficial, right? At least transiently reducing mTOR with rapamycin seems to be beneficial for a whole bunch of health span metrics and potentially lifespan in people and dogs and certainly in mice. And yet, you know, maintaining muscle mass, maintaining strength, which is pro-promoting mTOR, at least in muscle, also is clearly beneficial in people. And so how do we how do we resolve that? And I think a lot of it comes down to context, but the real answer is we, we don't completely understand it. I think a lot of it comes down to tissue and, and some of it comes down to when and how much. So, you know, I think chronic inhibition of mTOR, growth hormone, IGF-1, in middle-aged people, from my perspective, is probably a bad idea. Um, but I don't know for sure. Um, I can only say that my guess is that will increase your risk of frailty, um, loss of muscle mass, um, might slightly reduce the risk of cancer, but I don't think it's going to lead to very large increases in, in longevity. So it's just a super complicated um, question that, I, that, we, that probably isn't a simple answer for mm-hmm. right now. Yeah. Uh, and then Techno Future 8, these, everyone has great uh, usernames. Uh, ask him about meso, mesochymal stem cells derived mesochymal stem cells. from exosomes. And it, even if just like, are you aware of them? And just ah. like, that's, that, that would be sufficient for this person, but they're, they're wondering your thoughts on it. I am they aware like, of them. Yes. So they've linked a bunch the of question, research. Yeah, I think excited. the question is around exosomes from mesenchymal stem cells. So yes, let me take a step back. In general, There is a lot of interest in various types of stem cell therapies for regenerative 
purposes, right? So you can go to clinics around the world that will inject you with stem cells and you may or may not get some regenerative benefit from that. Um, there is emerging interest in factors that are secreted from stem cells and exosomes are lipid bound particles that are secreted from, from cells that may contain the rejuvenating properties that or some of the rejuvenating properties that you can get from stem cells. I think this is a super interesting and important area of research. There is certainly some evidence in animal models that you can get regenerative properties from stem cell exosomes. People are starting to try to study what the factors are that are maybe mediating those properties, microRNAs, things like that. Um, would I go out and inject myself with mesenchymal exosomes today? No, I, I probably wouldn't. Um, it, it, and in part, I would say part of my, the reason why I'm, I'm hesitant to, to really, you know, think too much about going even for, for stem cell, uh, therapies is there's no regulation as far as I can tell at this point, which means you don't really know what is in these preparations of stem cells that people that you're going and getting at these stem cell mm -hmm. clinics. So that makes me nervous. Um, and, uh, and so I personally wouldn't recommend doing that, but I do think it's a super important area of research and there's a lot of potential there. So I would actually like to see, I know people are going to hate me for this. And honestly, I'm not a big fan of FDA if people have followed me, but I would actually like to see FDA take a little stronger role or somebody take a little stronger role in regulating these stem cell therapies that are mostly offshore right now, maybe bring them onshore and regulate them so that we have some knowledge about, you know, purity and quality and outcomes. Cause right now it just kind of feels like the wild west. And, and mm -hmm. I personally would be nervous about, you know, going somewhere and getting stem cell injections. And I'm not saying there aren't reputable places that do that. I'm not certainly not trying to suggest that, but how do you know? How do you know which are the, the reputable places? And 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 so that that would be my concern. I'd like to see more regulation so that we can have some more confidence um, in, in these sorts of uh, offerings. All right. And then I think this might be the last span of question given our time. Uh, so stoic optum, uh, one issue in raptamycin RCTs is the risk of unbinding due to char characteristics of AEs like mouth ulcers. Have you thought about this aspect in future human trials? This might mitigate. This might be mitigated by careful consideration of endpoints being measured. I think they have a PhD in biology, so that this is uh, yeah. Yeah. So a couple things I'll say about this. So so let me re rephrase just mm -hmm. just to, to make sure everybody's on the same page. I think the first part of that was so you do a clinical trial. If it's a randomized double-blind cl clinical trial, the, the, the provider, the doctor doesn't know who's getting the placebo or the treatment, and the person, the participant doesn't know. That's the double-blind part. So the unblinding comment there, I think, is around the idea that one of the known side effects of rapamycin is mouth sores, mouth ulcers. And so if somebody's in a clinical trial, they don't know if they're getting the placebo or they're getting rapamycin, they develop a mouth ulcer, they might conclude that they're getting the rapamycin. That's absolutely a possibility. Mm -hmm. um, uh, there's not a lot you can really do about that. I will say people who aren't taking rapamycin get canker sores all the time. So it's not like that's a definitive you're getting rapamycin just because you got a canker sore. And in fact, there's a study that, that is now accepted. It should be out in geroscience soon 
where we collected data from people who've been using rapamycin off-label. And, you know, it's something like four or 5% of the non-users had mouth sores in the past three months and 15% of the rapamycin users. Don't quote me on that. That's my recollection, something like that. So it's not a definitive all or nothing, I would say, regardless. But, but it is a concern that people then might conclude they're getting rapamycin and that would affect the rest of their, um, you know, uh, perception of, of what the drug's doing. A couple of things to say about that. I think, again, in a well-designed clinical trial, you would also want to look at a variety of, in addition to patient reported outcomes, a variety of more biochemical measures, functional measures that you would expect to be less susceptible to whether the, the, the participant thinks they're getting the medication or not. Not to say that there's no effect because placebo effect is real, but you would expect them to be less sensitive, like blood-based parameters, grip strength, walking speed, you know, depending on what the clinical trial is for, echocardiographic parameters for heart function, cognitive assessment. So things like that are, I think, the things you would want to measure. But also, I would say, you will, if the trial is sufficiently designed, so large enough, long enough, um, I think, I think the concerns about you know potentially uh, potential bias from people believing they're getting the placebo or not are minimized. You can't ever mm -hmm. completely rule that out, but I think you can. I think you can reduce it. Sweet. And then a quick bonus one is: Do you recommend any books people check out? It doesn't have to be in your field. It could just be a book that yeah. you've enjoyed. I, I mean, uh, one that's pretty recent is Peter Atia's book, Outlive. I think that's a, that's mm -hmm. a primer that anybody who's interested in this space should absolutely read. Um, I think Peter nailed it. And then uh, I just want to thank you, Matt, for coming out today. Everyone listening in for the, the fan questions. Sorry that we couldn't get to all of them. And if there's one one place I would guess is the best place to stay up to date with what you're working on, it's your Twitter. You seem very active, but is that the, the best place? And then yeah, thank you for coming Probably the, the show. best place for now. I, I will say I have a love-hate relationship with, with Twitter. So I have periods of activity and then periods where I don't, don't look at it. Um, mm. Although I will say, I'm sure everybody else knew this already, but I, I only realized in like the last six months or so that if I just mute the people who annoy me, it's great because I don't see their nonsense. So, so that's yeah, been my solution to, to Twitter frustration is I just mute the people who, uh, who annoy me. You're, you're training the algorithm for what you're looking for, but yeah, th thanks, yeah I know, but it's, you know what, it's better than getting frustrated. No, yeah, no, I think that's a good thing. <laughs> it's a good thing to do.